From social service industry, I'm Jing Yang. A year ago, with Singapore just coming out of its circuit breaker and the world still coming to grips with the COVID-19 virus, Aaron Maniam explained in a TED Talk that the language we used to talk about the pandemic was shaping how we thought about it. Instead of using a war metaphor, for instance, he argued that characterizing COVID-19 as an ecology would help us better understand the pandemic and our futures. Today, we chat about the influence of language and metaphors on futures thinking, as well as the importance of citizen foresight work in Singapore. Aaron is a poet and civil servant. Aaron, you are a policymaker and a poet, and you've also described yourself as a futurist, right? So in general, what does it mean, or for the listener, what does it mean to be a futurist? And how would you explain the importance of futurist thinking? I love that we're starting with this question. For me, being a futurist is about using the future as a tool to make better decisions today. It's only partly about imagining the future. It's only partly about you know, studying trends and where those trends might lead you in the future. But ultimately, you're using the future as a tool to make better decisions today. My favorite image for this is, is from a chap called Pierre Vac, who used to do futures and scenario planning for Shell, which is probably one of the most accomplished organizations at applying futures. And he called futures the gentle art of reperceiving. What are you reperceiving? You're reperceiving the present. And you're therefore making better decisions based on that reperceiving. And why is it gentle? Because you're using the future as a tool to have a discussion that's taking place you know, in a world that is 20, maybe 30 years in the future. And it's gentle, therefore, because you don't have to accuse anybody of having make, make mistakes now. You don't have to get on anyone's turf. And it's a much safer space, therefore, for, for that conversation. And in thinking about that, because in the conversation before, our recording and in thinking of practicing the gentle art of reperceiving, you've spoken to the power and influence of language, words, and metaphors. I imagine to be able to practice that art, you would have to master that as well. So, on other platforms, you've also spoken about poetry and, and policy in relations to futures thinking. So, what is the importance of language and words in futures thinking? You know, the importance comes because of the, the reperceiving that you have to do, right? You're asking difficult questions. You're asking what-if questions that require imagination. You're asking questions that go deep at the assumptions that we hold about the world today. And in both of those cases, right, these what-if questions and in questioning our assumptions, you are asking people to imagine a future that they don't live in, but that you nonetheless need to make real. And therefore, a good futurist knows how to name that future. Right? And naming is essentially an art of language. Right? It's what poets do. Poets are namers. I like to think philosophers are namers as well, right? because they names to complex concepts or complex relationships that otherwise are a bit difficult to understand. But when, once you give things a name, you tame the things as well. Naming is taming is one of my favorite phrases. And, and futures, therefore, is about taming by finding language for unfamiliar ideas. It's really a constant process of naming. Let me give you an example of this, actually. One of my favorite set of scenarios is what we call the national scenarios done by the Singapore government in the early 1990s. It was the first set of national scenarios that we did. And they came up, the team that did it came up with two particular scenarios, right? One was called Hotel Singapore and one was called Home Divided. And these are special. I mean, not because I was involved in them, right? I mean, in 1997, I had just done my A-level. So I, had, I was not involved in this team at, at all. But 
the, those names are very resonant and they're, they're remembered until today in the government. They're remembered by people in the public because there was actually an, actually an exhibition about these, these different scenarios. And, and they were very resonant because what the team realized was that there was lots of thinking at the time about international issues and about the economy, but not as much thinking about social trends and social issues, issues about social identity, the sense of belonging and the sense of rootedness to Singapore. And the scenarios therefore were meant to provoke thinking about that. Hotel Singapore therefore was a Singapore that was very successful, but that was a hotel that people came and lived in for a while transiently, but then would leave after a certain amount of time, right? So very economically successful, but not much of that sense of rootedness and then social collective identity. And then Home Divided was where there was an identity, but it was multiple identities to different communalistic roots rather than to an overall national identity. And so that was a home, but it was a divided home because people felt connected to different aspects of their, their Singaporeanness. And these are powerful examples of how when you get the right name, you can actually bring very complex concepts to life. I'll give you another set of examples that are not just from Singapore, right, but where naming is just as important. I mentioned Shell earlier, and Shell, like I said, is one of the most accomplished organizations using futures thinking. They had a wonderful set of scenarios, I think around 2009, 2010. They produced many different sets of scenarios every couple of years. But my favorite of the things that they've done were just two scenarios, right, called Scramble and Blueprint. And this, these were two scenarios that were formulated at a time when the world was still on the cusp of dealing well with climate change, right? The, the Copenhagen UNFCCC summit had, was in, being prepared for at the time. And Shell realized that as we're dealing with climate change, there really were two scenarios, right? One is you end up with a world that is in a scramble, where it's everyone for themselves, where you have mercantilistic or target economic practices amongst countries, everyone scrambling for resources and scrambling in an every person for themselves sort of way. Or you could have a blueprint, you could have a plan, a structure, a framework that would allow us to maybe sub-optimize for ourselves, but that at the global level would reach much better outcomes. And those, again, are very powerful words, right? They're just two words, scramble and blueprint, but they capture very vividly what exactly these complex scenarios are like. So in finding language, if we can find the right names for things, actually half the battle of futures is won because people, I think, are much more inclined to, to relate to something that they feel they can already understand. I mean, I can attest to the, the resonance of the Hotel Singapore metaphor. I mean, maybe of my generation, I remember my parents would say, um, don't treat your home like a hotel, right? As the mm -hmm. idea is that yeah. you're always out running exactly. your mouth and you are That's right. um, treating yeah. the, the, the home as just a yeah. place to come back. So every, every parental unit felt vindicated by that set of scenarios. <laughs> And I kind of like this notion of naming and taming because still sticking to this theme of language and metaphors, you know, about a year ago, you gave this really eloquent TED talk and, 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 and in Singapore, the circumstance is a bit different right now. You know, we came out of a circuit breaker, the world is still coming to terms with COVID-19 and you were really bringing attention to how we were describing and thinking about the pandemic, right? So I, I kind of had two questions. So the first one would be, you mentioned that instead of using a war metaphor to describe the pandemic, you instead suggested that we should think of life in the pandemic as an ecology. So at that point in time, in the context of Singapore, um, tell us what you meant by the ecology or the thinking of the pandemic as an ecology. Let me take uh, that question in two sure. steps. Right? First of all, why, why metaphors are important and then why the ecology metaphor is important for, for covid This thing about metaphors is that, you know, actually metaphors are out there everywhere, right? They, they may seem like only the tools of a poet, but they are used by all of us. You know, when you say you want to defeat an argument, you're using essentially a military or, or warlike metaphor, right? 
you know, when, when we talk about running a meeting as well, or when we say that the life, a person's race is run, we're really saying that life is a bit like a race. But life is not a race, right? It, it is something else entirely. But we use the race metaphor to understand aspects of it. Probably the best work I've ever seen on this is by a chap called Gareth Morgan, who wrote a wonderful book uh, called Images of Organization. And, and in that book, what he says is that depending on how we think about the organizations that we're in, what metaphors we choose to understand those organizations, we will treat them very differently. If you think of your organization as a machine, then the people are cogs in that machine, right? They are gears, they are parts that move in a very impersonal, mechanistic way. And that's all that they are. If you think of your organization as a family, then you will emphasize much more of the human relationships that are involved in them. But families have dysfunctions as well, right? So you know you, you bring those on board right, into, into the organization. He had several images. One other one that was interesting was a family as a culture, right? Or family as a psychic prison. And both of those bring very, sorry, organizations as culture, organizations as psychic prisons. And in each of those cases, he's bringing to bear different elements, right? Uh, that the images highlight. So that's, that's why I think metaphors are important because they help us understand ourselves. They help us understand uh, what's going on out, out beyond us because they, they give a name, an incomplete name, but a name nonetheless to, to what's you know, taking place um, outside of us. And, and therefore, the, the metaphors we choose for COVID are really important. I think the, the, there is a very, very clear wall-like metaphor, right? People talk about flattening the curve at the height of the, you know, of the, the caseload um, in, in the world. We talked about defeating the virus. Those are wall-like metaphors, right? And they're, they're assuming that there is going to be this identifiable enemy and you fight a war with it, and at some point, the undefined future, but at some point, there will be an end to that war, because wars end, right? Well, most of them do. I mean, some carry on indefinitely, like yeah. Vietnam, but even that ended eventually. And my problem with the, the warlike metaphor is it, it, it's wonderful for a lot of things, right? It galvanizes people, it captures the urgency of the situation, but it didn't capture for me the fact that there is no identifiable enemy here. Is the virus really the enemy, or is it other people you know, who are undertaking antisocial uh, activities or mm -hmm. antisocial actions. And, and, and when does this war end? As we're seeing now, I mean, you know, the enemy keeps changing because the virus mutates and situations that look like they were victorious have ended up being filled with defeat. What looked like defeat has led to long-term gains and resilience in different societies. So I think the, the war metaphor is problematic because it, it doesn't capture completely the complexity of the, uh, the whole phenomenon. And what I like about the ecology metaphor, right, to think of COVID as an ecology, is that first of all, it helps us to realize that viruses are natural. They happen in the world. We've had them around forever, right? We've dealt with flu. We've helped with dealt with tuberculosis. All of those things have involved different aspects of the ecology. And once we realize that, then we, we realize, I think, that, that, that fighting this virus is not quite the right way to deal with it. We need to learn how to deal with it. We need to learn to deal with a situation where actually the virus might become endemic and not just pandemic. Mm -hmm part of our lives forever. It may change the nature of travel and the nature of interaction, but it's here, right? And there, I think if we treat the virus as part of the ecology, then we realize that we are part of the ecology with it, right? And we therefore need to learn to coexist with each other as well in that whole process. And I think what the ecology metaphor captures for me, which the war metaphor doesn't, is how interconnected and interdependent we are. Because all ecologies are that, right? Predators eat prey, predators are preyed on by other, other predators, and there is an economic, uh, an ecological balance that comes from that whole process. And that, I think, is what is captured in the ecology metaphor, which the, the war metaphor doesn't. But I, I should stress, by the way, that even the ecology metaphor is, is incomplete. All metaphors are incomplete. 
but they do highlight certain things about it. And some do a job that is better than others. And so I think what's wrong with the ecology metaphor is, it, it's, is the interrelationships that it captures are very, very impersonal. Like I said earlier, prey is eaten by predator, predator is eaten by other predators. Eventually the high predator dies and goes back into the ecology by decomposing and decaying. And there is the cycle of life, right? But those are very impersonal things. No one blames the lion, right, for killing the gazelle in a, in a savanna um, ecology. But you would blame a human for killing other humans. Yeah. And so I think what's missing is that there is a moral element to human society as well. And so I think an even richer metaphor, actually, is to describe us as a moral ecology, not just a cold, impersonal ecology that, that's living out biological axioms, but an ecology that is captured by moral and ethical relationships where we are interconnected with one another, not just because of what we do, but because each of our decisions needs to affect not just ourselves, but other people as well. So I do think the ecology method can be quite rich if we bring in this moral dimension into it. Yeah, I was going to say, and think about that as an, you don't mind me jumping and I had kind of two thoughts when you were describing the ecology metaphor. Number one, when you're speaking to the moral dimension, the notion that inequalities are given, that they, they are, it is what it is and it's not something that we can change. And I guess the second one is thinking about inequality, not just within a country, but between. Right now, throughout, I mean, throughout the past year, a lot of the obsession has been, oh, is the country doing better than the other country? You know, what are the top 10 countries? I think it's important to celebrate successes, but increasingly with COVAX and looking at the vaccine, it's becoming increasingly clear the question now is not one of competition and collaboration. And that war metaphor, as you mentioned, doesn't quite capture the importance of working together. And now it's completely like who gets secu- who gets to secure access is not about expanding access in that sense. So yeah, there, yeah. there was two, those two things that came to mind. I guess on that note, a year later, you know, it's quite different. I mean, we're in a semi-lock, I wouldn't say lockdown, but... We are in phase two right now, enhanced phase two. Yep. To what extent does the metaphor still hold, the ecology metaphor, do you think? I think it absolutely holds. You know, it, the interconnections are still there. You know, what each of us does affects others. In a very early stage of the, the pandemic in Singapore, we used to say, right, that the, the safety of all depends on the actions of everyone, right? And that each of us has a part to play in, in this whole process. And so I do think the interconnections are there. What we do affects other people in some ways as much now as it used to, right? Because Mask wearing is still important. Staying at home if you're not feeling well is important. Acting quickly if you think you might have come into contact with a case, that is important. You know, I remember that I I actually had a very important reservist activity to to attend. So I was in a a 10-day period of of in-camp training. And and on one of the evenings, I don't don't stay in, but I come out every night. And on one of the evenings, I I met a friend who told me, the minute he found out, he said, I'm really sorry, but my brother-in-law is a case, right? And of course, I didn't ask myself, what are the rules, right? Technically, you know, I, I'm, I'm the contact of a contact. There's nothing I have to do. But I also thought, I better go check, right? Like, I don't know how things are now. So I went and got an ART test, uh, you know, which is quite useful because it does tell you fairly quickly whether you have it or not. I mean, it doesn't give you conclusive positives, but it's pretty conclusive on the negative aspect uh, of the result. So I went and got one. And then and I thought to myself, if it's inconclusive, then I am going to self-quarantine and see what, you know, just much as it pains me, I'm not going to be involved in that reservist activity. Thankfully, it came back negative. So, you know, I, I was all right. But I think that is the kind of, of agility that we're going to have to be dealing with these in, in the coming months, if not years. We'll have to find ways to react very quickly and, and in a way that recognizes the effects of our actions on others. And I think what we're seeing is also an increasing amount of moral interdependence, you know, not just ecological interdependence. And so that that's aspect of the moral ecology for me is becoming even stronger. I was thinking about how 
you said there was the war metaphor and the ecology metaphor. Yep. And then you had the moral ecology metaphor as well. So I was just thinking that we also need to have this fluidity about moving across different metaphors because yep. in a way, in your language, metaphors are models and yep. people like to say models are always incomplete pictures sort of, uh, yep. of reality. So we're just, we need to move quickly between them to a point on agility as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, Eddie. <clears throat> I think we need to have that seamlessness and, and that, that fluidity uh, to recognize when metaphors are useful and when they are not useful. Because like I said, even the war metaphor has a place, right? It helped us capture public attention, it captured focus, and it allowed people to concentrate on the gravity of the situation that they were in. But it is incomplete, just as the ecological metaphor by itself is incomplete. And complementary to this, this discourse about COVID-19, to com I mean, complementary to communications engagement, and again, in other writings, you've emphasized the need for policymakers to see the public not just as taxpayers, customers, or service receivers, but as citizens who are invested in the country's collective future. So with policy yeah. work and futures thinking in mind, what will or what should governance in the future look like? It's such a good question, you know, it's something I ponder a lot. And, and here actually metaphors become very useful as well. Because if you ask yourself, what is the metaphor for governance? So we're not we're leaving COVID-19 behind now, right? But what metaphor would you use for governance? Um, I've come across a few that I really like. One is the metaphor, and, and so these come particularly from Tim O'Reilly and Anne-Marie Slaughter, you know, uh, both working on one in the private sector and one formerly in, in academia and then in policy and then now back in academia again. They came up with one of, one of the ideas was the idea of government as a control tower, right? Government that is in possession of all relevant information and can tell people, you know, like aeroplanes in an airport, right? You land here, you fly at this level, you can land now, you stay in the air. You know, there's 10 planes ahead of you, you can't land yet, you can't take off because the runway isn't ready, right? That's that metaphor of the control tower. And there was a time when that probably worked quite well, right? There's this idea of government as a leviathan that possesses huge amounts of information that is superior to all um, other people's information. And it was able, therefore, to make decisions that were generally more complete, more full than, than others. But that's not a great metaphor nowadays, right? Because does anybody have complete information the way air traffic controllers do? Probably not. So that, I think, is not a great metaphor. Then there's the, the metaphor of the vending machine. Right? And this is where if you think of citizens only as taxpayers, right, then they pay taxes, then they've met their burden of citizenship. Then the government needs to do what they want to do, right? I've pressed my button on the vending machine by paying my taxes. And now I want the thing that I wanted, right? I want a Snickers bar or I want a can of Coca-Cola that has huge amounts of sugar in it. You know, that's the thing about vending machines, right? They give you things that you want or think you want, but they're not always good things for you. And that, that could be one, one model of government as well, right? It's a government that's quite populist, right? very responsive to citizen needs, but in a quite short-term sort of way. Neither of those are great, I think. The two methods I really like nowadays for, for governance, and this, I think, is to answer your question, uh, to, you know, one is government as a platform. Our phones are platforms nowadays, right? So many apps are platform apps because they, they gather other sources of information, they gather other functions, and they, they act in that platform way. I think we need to think of government more and more as a platform, right? Can government be an aggregator, uh, a collector, a convener of interests that allows us to, to actually function and, and, and deal with those interests in a much more aggregated way than we, we might have done before? I think that for me is a powerful image and there's so much potential in it. Government can't be platform on everything, I would stress, right? You've still got to collect taxes, you've got to defend your country, especially at national levels. But government can be platform in a lot of other instances. And that's something that I think, you know, I think about a lot as a policymaker, because I want to ask myself, where possible, can government act more like a platform? And then linked to this is the idea of government as a network, 
I, I love Manuel Castell's work on, on network theory, which tells us that you know, when you have these intersecting nodes, right, nodes that are connected in, in some ways, you end up with exponential richness coming, coming about. And, and the power of a network is very is, is, is deep and profound, right, in terms of the, the effects it can have. It multiplies the power of any individual um, node in it and, and allows us to think a lot more about how if government can be these nodal parts of, of, of nodal personalities in, in networks, mm -hmm. then we can actually harness other members of the network, right? Private sector, people sector, individual citizens, and, and help them to achieve even better outcomes. So I think that combination of platform and network is where I'm thinking at the moment, right? And, and I, I do wonder to myself, what is the potential if we can really magnify some of the, the ideas there and bring out the, the network effects and the platform effects of, of government policy? I want to invite Eddie to see if he has uh, another metaphor in mind or whether he's a fan of the platform uh, network kind of metaphor as well. I also have in mind the reason why I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking of what you shared about COVID and then this, this these two met these four metaphors, right? I'm actually reading a yep. book um, by Rebecca Solnit. It's called A Paradise Built in Hell. And the idea is mm. she was documenting cases of citizen altruism after disasters, right? So from right. the earthquake in California in 1905 to um, yep. Hurricane Katrina and to 9-11, right? And what she found was that in times of crisis like COVID, for instance, citizens actually display not just tremendous amounts of altruism, but those networks and those communities stick around for a very long time. In fact, in some instances, yep. they do much better than the state who panic. And it's not the individuals who panic on the ground, but it's the elites or the governments in certain circumstances who, who panic instead. And so that brought to mind, you know, when you shared about that and then the use of metaphor. So I, I don't know if Eddie has a thought on his preferred metaphors or whether he agrees that the platform network combination seems like the one that um, works the best or makes the most sense. So here again, right, I'm agnostic because like what Aaron says, we, it's very important that the government is clear about in which areas it can be best as a network, can produce the best outcomes. So in certain situations, it should step aside and let networks cohere or private markets and social markets together or whatever combination. In some other situations, it's a platform. In some other areas, it probably has to kind of be a Leviathan force also looking at the platform very closely. So yeah, there'll be, the, the future will be a lot more mixed in this regard that government will be multiple things and multiple locations. And it's also the burden is on citizens to step up and see how government is working in all these areas and try to work with it. And I think that's another metaphor, working with the government rather than by being acted on by the government. So there are a lot of these modalities that, that we're seeing arising. So it's really interesting to see how all this unfolds as we, as we look to the future. You know, I don't know if this was where you started the question, you know, but I think one way to think about it is, what do we even expect a government to do, yeah. right? Do we expect it to administer, to manage, or to govern, right? And those are very different things, right? When you talk, and, and all of them are fields that can be studied, right? There's public administration. People talk about it as a field. And that's one part of what governments do, right? They, they, they indeed administer, right? They administer budgets, they administer human resources. And then, you know, and, and that has existed for a good number of years since the times of Max Weber, right? Bureaucracies administer. And then in the kind of late 20th century, you started to see ideas around new public management come about. So public, a public sector that manages and doesn't just administer. And this came from the fact that some people at least felt that you could learn a lot from the private sector and governments would benefit from becoming more like companies, yep. right? And so you had new public management start to come into being. 
great in a lot of ways, right? Outsourcing private sector incentives, uh, people being rewarded for performance, all very private sector practices. But people realized that new public management was also, you know, in a lot of ways problematic. You know, and it, it certainly, um, when you look at some of the evidence, right, didn't always work, especially on things like complex outsourcing. Uh, and now I think what we're seeing is, is uh, two sets of, of offshoots, you know, not pure administration, not public management. Some people are talking a lot about new public governance, right? The, the possibility of government being just one actor in this network that, that I mentioned and harnessing the power of the people sector uh, and of businesses as well. So that's one model, right? There's this much more polyarchic sort of system where, where there are multiple actors at work. And, and then another group of, of folks are also thinking a lot about I guess the, the idea of, of, of values, you know, and, and, and what exactly governed and, and animates the, the act of governance. I have a friend in, in New Zealand, a chap called Ryan Orange, who used to be in the government there and has done some consultancy work for other, other governments. And he talks a lot about new public passion, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that people on fire in government in order to do the work that they do? And then yet other people, uh, you know, Mariana Matsukato being a good example at, you know, of this at UCL, she talks about how governments need to reclaim certain space and become entrepreneurial states, mm -hmm. right? And they are actually the ones responsible for some of the greatest investments in things like the internet, as DARPA did in the US, you know, and some of the biggest investments in space exploration have actually come from, from governments. So, you know, you see all these interesting examples, right, where it's not just administration, not just management, but, but governance that's much more complex, value creation that's much more complex, and entrepreneurialism, which again is very, very different from, from a pure administration or management system. And I think as Eddie said, that the key is to figure out which types of roles suit governments yep. best in particular settings. Yeah, one what I'm kind of appreciating from or kind of reading from the both of you, Aaron and Eddie, is your language and when you express concepts is a lot more tentative. So you would say, oh, um, the eco ecology metaphor is better than the wall one, but the ecology one has its drawbacks and shortcomings as well. NPM came into fashion in public administration, but it has its problems and, and shortcomings as well, which I think right. it must be a feature of futures thinking in the sense of dealing with great uncertainty and considering a broader range of possibilities, which as a yep. outsider seems is something that I'm starting to pick up on as well. So I guess for Aaron, in 2017 for an article you wrote for opendemocracy.net, you wrote a letter from your future self on citizen foresight, right? You talked about yep. some implications for citizen foresight, which I really, really like. So let's take them, you know, one by one. So could you briefly explain each and whether they continue to be relevant? I think the first one was modular futures product, which is appealed to me when you said moving away from dense PowerPoint slides and reports. Yes, I feel very strongly about this. Uh, you know, you can write the most wonderful, you know, well-researched, comprehensively footnoted report in the world, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages long. But if no one reads it, then it has achieved no impact, right? It's like the proverbial tree that falls in the forest and if no one hears it, then did it even fall? Like, did this report actually exist if no one has read it? And it applies to, honestly, to reports and, and papers uh, more broadly. I, you've probably seen the, the World Bank statistic, right, about how much its papers have been downloaded and read it actually tracks some of this and yep. the answer is not very high. I'm well ready for the fact that my PhD thesis is going to be read by <laughs> my supervisors, my two examiners, and maybe my mother. <laughs> That's about <laughs> So I think we, we, if we want to help people to name the future, right? That's complex enough as it is. We do need to make the products a lot more modular, right? If you just mm -hmm. say page report, no one is going to read it. We need modular things because that allows us to deal with our own cognitive not deficiencies, but our own cognitive limitations, which are natural, right? Mm -hmm. Having cognitive limitations doesn't make us bad people. It just means that we might be tired at some point or that we can't process too much information all at once. And I think it, 
when you do modular products, right, whether it's cards or short videos that people can take in slowly, you make the, the complexity of the future a little bit more digestible mm-hmm. and a little bit more tractable right, yep. and understandable. And the next one would be immersiveness, right? I was going to give a really blip, uh, sorry, really blip reply and say the same applies to academia about modular future products. I mean, the journal mm-hmm. article is one of those really antiquated products that's, not, that's, that's still there <laughs> behind the paywall, right? But yeah. like, so the next one was immersiveness. What do you mean by immersiveness? So with immersiveness, what I mean is that you want to engage not just the, the head of a person, so not just the cognitive aspects, but to engage the heart and the hand mm-hmm. as well, right? To create a whole product that, in, that engages the whole person, where the whole person can immerse themselves in the product. And this means you know, getting people to watch videos, right? Or getting people, even if they're reading something, to make what they read an artifact of a real world or a potential real world, rather than just something that engages with them in an intellectual way. If possible, this means you know, creating a mock-up of what a hospital of the future or a classroom of the future or a laptop of the future will look like, right? And asking yourself, well, what will, what will, how will things have changed by then, right? And sometimes the most subtle things can change, right? I mean, you write a, a headline. If, if you just had to produce the front page of a newspaper from a year now, how would that look different, right? What, the date would be different, first of all. You know, might there be different ways of capturing websites at that time? Might there be different ways of referring to data? So just small changes can do it. And, and even that letter to myself that I wrote from the future, it included little bits of details, like you know, a building that didn't exist. It said level seventy-seven, you know, from of a building. A lot of a lot of residential buildings do not have seventy-seven floors, right? So you just little details like that help build a world, right? In the same way, science fiction writers do, right? You're creating a world that allows for people to imagine the future in its completeness, and I think that immersiveness is really important uh, because it allows things to stick better. And what sticks in someone's mind, they will remember and they will use in their future decision-making. And part of this would be, and I think the third element you described was crowdsourcing technologies, yeah. right? So what do you mean, and how do you mean crowdsourcing technologies? Yeah, what I mean by that is really that the more people you get involved in creating these potential images of the future, the more they will buy into it. This is a very standard OD or organizational development principle, that right? people buy into what they help create. I'll just repeat that because it's quite useful to hear again. People buy into what they help create. Mm-hmm. So if I tell someone, here's a future that I've created, right? Me and all my, uh, my wisdom, Aaron Maniam created these, these futures. Please believe them. They're probably not going to. They're going to look at it and be like, yeah, okay, maybe, kind of-ish, but they're not really going to buy into it. Whereas if I say to them, here's an idea I have about the future. What's your idea about the future? And can we imagine a world where both of those things coexist? And then we do that with many people. I think the, the, the buy-in, the investment, the, the, the fact that people find it credible is going to be much, much greater. So the more we can crowdsource, the better, I think, the more rigorous, more resilient our products become. And in a way, I wanted to use that to segue to the final question, which is mm-hmm. in the very same article, you wrote about your persistence with citizen foresight work, right? And I quote, yep. you are really convinced of the need to move the practice of futures beyond small elite groups like business offsites and government planning terms and widen its use among citizens, end quote. And you just said people buy into what they help create. And I guess the question for you, Aaron, would be how successful have we been in broadening this practice of futures and what should come next? And I guess this question of what should come next, I'll also throw to Eddie after um, Aaron has given his response as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question on which to, to end because, you know, in a lot of ways, good futuring, good governance, maybe the two are the same thing. 
they are constant works in progress, right? You're, you're, you never really arrive. You can't say, oh, I've achieved the nirvana of governance now, or I've achieved the nirvana of futures. It, it's constant improvement. So I think we're a lot better today than we were years ago. And I hope we keep getting better in terms of you know, how we engage citizens. The first set of scenarios, the ones I mentioned, right? Hotel Singapore and Home Divided, those actually, they got turned into an exhibition, which um, was hosted by the government. And then that involves citizens giving their thoughts and feedback on the whole process. So there was you know, a good element of public engagement in that process. Since then, we've done many processes which have involved citizens shaping a future of their own. Right? The Singapore conversation uh, involved asking a very deep question around what would Singapore, what did people want Singapore to be right, in, in the space of 10 to 15 years? So that was an example of involving more people. The Institute of Policy Studies did a wonderful uh, series that they called the PRISM Scenarios in, I think it was 2012 to 2013. Mm -hmm. a really powerful material. And that was, you know, there were some core ideas that they developed in a series of workshops with about 80 people. Uh, so there already there was, you know, some small crowdsourcing. And then they brought that into a, a, an immersive, not immersive, exhibition at the National Library, which involved people adding to those scenarios. And that was really powerful, right? Because the, the, the whole set of activities were designed to engage participants in a, in a very deep way. So it wasn't just, here's some ideas, give us more. We started by getting people to sing modified National Day songs, right? So we are Singapore and count on me Singapore, but with the lyrics modified for different scenarios. And then people walked into a museum of the future where they saw things from today, right? Back then, 2013, that had been discarded because they were no longer relevant. You saw things like report books, for instance, right? Because they, they, they felt one scenario was a Singapore that moved away from a pure um, emphasis on academic results. Yeah. And they went and watched the video. They, they interacted with the actors in the video, all very immersively. And, and I think those allowed for citizens to really come and not just be passive receivers, but active creators in and participants of right, that, that overall future. And I, and I think increasingly now, we're seeing more and more examples of where people are involved in that whole process. Right. There's more material shared on futures, including by the Center for Strategic Futures on its website, just so that people can use that as a resource. They shared their emerging strategic issues cards so that people can play the game with the, the, those cards and use them as a catalyst to generate ideas. I love the fact that the Lee Kuan Yew School these days has conducted more webinars that people can attend to train themselves in, in futures thinking. Some years ago, some friends and I used to run futures workshops at the National Youth Council Academy so that we could bring the skills and the, the vocabulary of futures to new people, right? Not just those who, who have been trained in, in, in some elite uh, course. Eddie, you were involved in some of those trainings, right? If I remember, right? Yes, indeed. I was. Uh, I ran a few of these sessions myself, too. Exactly. So, <laughs> just to. And in fact, sorry, Eddie, before, just can I just add one last example, which I'm very edified by? It's um, friend, you know, Cheryl Chung, who, who teaches futures at the, at the Lee Kuan Yew School. I love the work that she's doing to take futures to other youth groups. So, she's teaching futures to uh, students in a, in a junior college, you know, where she's really equipping them with a vocabulary to imagine these potential scenarios and reperceive their own present, right? Using the, the gentle art that, that Pierre Vaquez has taught us. So I think all of those for me are causes for optimism. Are we perfect? No, we can always do more. But I think the fact that each day we do a little bit more than we did yesterday is part of the journey of this, this whole discovery of what futures can be like. Yeah, and just to add to that, yeah, like what Aaron says, there is definitely still a long way to go in terms of futures practice in Singapore, especially if by that you mean the community whether you expect the everyday person to realize that he or she is practicing futures. So there are also 
things like that to think about as well. And then there's also, well, not everyone's going to be a futurist, but everyone thinks about the future, right? So maybe they're not going to be all full-time futurists, but if they're aware of the tools and some of the metaphors that we move through, then that's already going some way. There's also the thing about futures doesn't look, doesn't have to look like futuring, right? So it doesn't have to look like research. It doesn't have to look like all the usual things we do as writers and researchers. Futuring can simply be imagination, right? can be different ways of expression, can be the things you read or hear about. So it's not just it's not just doing research and strategy and all the big, big stuff that we hear about. It's also the small stuff that we do in the everyday that we think about and do. So it could be Easy. It could be as simple as things like coming across a different kind of essay in the Straits Times or different kinds of essays in uh, Today or hearing about a story, watching a video that opens up your own horizons. So we don't really think of these as futures, but when we experience things like that and it broaden our horizon, I think that's also a kind of futuring that people might not be aware of. Yeah. On the, yeah, I forgot to mention one other no, example of, of where we're, you know, we're pushing this. And, 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 and as Eddie said, right, in, in a way that is every day rather than, than you know, part of this very formal strategy process. Uh, you know, so some friends and I who are involved in interfaith dialogue in, in Singapore, we kind of decided that you know, we've, a few of us have dabbled in futures before. We've all dabbled in, in the interfaith scene. And we thought, well, let's take futures into the interreligious dialogue scene. Right, and, and generate some, some scenarios there. And so we're going to run a series of workshops you know, over the next uh, couple of months where we, we hopefully generate some ideas on what the future of the interfaith scene and community in Singapore might look like. And I think this is where futures becomes most real, right? It's, 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 it's there when it answers a question and affects a community that we care about and isn't just this broad, abstract set of ideas. I have often wondered what would happen if we got families to do futures, right? You don't think about it, but actually, if, if, you know, if you catch parents when their kids are two, then for them to do 15 to 20 year scenarios, that means they have to imagine their child 17 or 22 years old. That's hard when you think about it, but it's so powerful, right? Because that relationship is one of the most, in a sense, morally tight, right? I mean, parents and children are connected to each other in all sorts of powerful ways. Mm-hmm. Always positive, in, in, uh, unfortunately, but, but very powerful. And so to ask yourself, you know that tie is not going to go away. What's it going to look like in 20 years' time? That's a powerful question. Companies can die, right? Governments come and go based on, on electoral patterns. But the real question in the family is, I mean, you, you know you're going to be around. And what's that going to be like? I think that's very powerful. There are no easy answers, but people have told me that having children is one of the deepest prompts that they have to think much more systematically about the future, right? I mean... This is the, the, it's the more imaginative part of you know, what happens when you buy an insurance policy that matures when your kid is 35. Um, <laughs> that's a scenario, right? Yeah, you think, what are the scenarios going to look like? But I think that's, that's you know, often where the most powerful insights can, can come from. And I would just betray my bias a little bit and say because of my work with uh, families from low-income backgrounds, how you think about the future also reflect yeah. your, your present circumstances and these inequalities as well. One of the things yeah. we've noted in the preliminary sense is that 
many of the times when parents from low-income backgrounds think about the futures for their children, they benchmark it against, for, on one hand, against themselves. So as long as my yeah. child does better than me academically, that's good enough. And yeah. they don't really, the second thing is they don't always think beyond their children. So they can articulate, yeah. for instance, I want my child to do well in school and work, but they cannot necessarily articulate what they want for themselves. Right. So yeah. within this family unit, it's not just about the children, but also about what you want when your children have move on to start their own families. Right. What does that Absolutely. look like for them? Yeah. So, yeah. There's actually a name for that, you know, you know, so, so some of the folks in, in, the, in futures, you know, as a discipline differentiate between what they call adaptive and activist futures. Yeah. So adaptive futures are where you say the world happens to me and I adapt to it. Right. And that's often the analytical approach that many of us take, including here in Singapore, right? I mean, we've, we, one of our mantras is that we're small, we have no natural resources, we are subject to the vicissitudes of global competition, all of which is true, right? And therefore, we can't really shape the world, we have to adapt to it. An activist approach to futuring starts with a very different question. It doesn't say what's going to happen in the world. It starts with the question, what is the world I want, right? What is the world that I want to actively shape that I have agency over? and that I therefore want to help create because that is, is the world that is going to be best for me. And of course, good futuring, like good practice of anything, involves a little bit of both. Right? If you're only activist, then you're probably going to be a bit reckless because you will overassume the amount of agency that you have. But if you're overly adaptive, then I think you start to disempower yourself right? and realize that you don't realize your full potential because there's always some agency involved in the things that we do, even if it's a small amount of it. And the more we realize and actively use that agency, I think the more powerfully we can shape the future. Just to add to that, there's also the time element as well. You might be adaptive today, but you can be activist sometime down the road. Yeah. So that also changes with time. You can grow your capabilities as you go along and influence things when you can. And on that note, um, thank you, Eddie, for being a part of this mini-series. And thank you, Aaron, for rounding up our four episodes. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. And uh, thank you both for today's conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Tingyang. And thank you, Aaron, for making the time for this as well. <laughs>